This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've certainly talked uh, a bit uh, of late, it seems, in the last year or so, uh, things that are going on in regarding uh, organized crime in this city and pretty much all the way across Canada, uh, certainly in Quebec and Ontario. Are tensions between mobs heating up? Uh, An analysis written in the Toronto Star suggests that mobsters are jostling to fill holes left behind. Uh, by the death of Vito Rizzuto. We'll talk about that with James Dubrow. He's a well-known longtime crime writer, researcher, and specialized in uh, specializing in organized crime and is with us now. Hello, James. How are you today? Fine, Scott. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, is there anything out of the ordinary here? Are we seeing more activity than normal, or are we just talking about it more? Well, I think we're seeing a lot of activity. I agree with the analysis by uh, by Peter Edwards in, in the Star that there's a lot of jostling for various positions among the various organized crime groups. But I don't think I'd frame it as Canada's next top mobster because we don't have a top mobster. Um, the closest thing to that, as he said, was Vito Rizzuto, who died four years ago, but really wasn't in power for 10 years previous to that. There's been jostling over various mafia people for position in head of the boss of Montreal for at least 10 years. And when I say, when we all say jostling, we mean killing each other, of course. <laughs> That's how you jostle in the mob. You, 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 don't, you don't do it gently. You basically have your rival sleeping with the fish. Uh, so there's been a lot of killing in, in the greater Toronto area, in Hamilton area, and, uh, and certainly in Montreal. Uh, the Musitano situation in Montreal is a little different. Uh, I wouldn't define Angela Musitano or describe him the late Angela Musitano as a top mob boss. He was really a minor uh, mobster of the Andrangheta, but and he was retired. But his brother Pat is certainly has been one of the major mobsters, and I have once several sources in the Hamilton underworld that tell me he won't make it through Labor Day, but we'll see. Hmm. And he is certainly in trouble, but it's in trouble mostly not with Montreal or Italy or, well, maybe Italy, Montreal or Buffalo, but in trouble with other Indrangheta families in the greater Toronto area and Hamilton area, I would say, who are taking over some of this Coke business and just don't want him around anymore. And and, and as Peter Edward said, there's a, there's a lot of friction over the gambling sports uh, lines to uh, right across uh, you know the Ontario and Quebec areas so that is very true so talk about Vito Rizzuto and the void created by him when he passed what uh, and you say that this has been jostling that was going on prior to him even. before he died now interestingly enough about Vito uh, and it's been four at least four years since he died maybe longer uh, close to five anyway uh, he was in jail for Ten year, eight years, and there was a lot of jostling and and killings, really, uh, of various people. Several of his top people were disappeared. By the time he got back, he had to spend a year or two just trying to get control of Montreal again, which he more or less did, and then he died. <laughs> so it wasn't much of a uh, consolidate. It was a consolidation for a while, but then when he died, uh, things fell apart again. Uh, because there have been so many rivalries for 10 years. Uh, his son and one of the Scopolides temporarily technically took over, but they're already in jail. And there's just so much going on in the organized crime worlds in in Canada, particularly in, in Ontario and Quebec. I mean, you've got many other gangs, you know, the Hells Angels and other biker groups. You've, you've got Russian, you've got uh, Asian uh, you've got a lot of different groups vying for pieces uh, of the organized crime pie, and there's quite a lot of it. Um, so it's not as simple as just one guy or two. And there isn't going to be one guy running Canada. It doesn't work that way. There are many mafias, the Sicilian, the Calabrian. There isn't going to be one mafia, Don. No one will ever be as powerful again as Vito Rizzuto or Nick Rizzuto, his father. And if they are, it will take a long time, as Peter Edward said, it will take a while to consolidate a position. So we are in this state of flux right now with a lot of different, you know, there's a strengthening of the biker world, uh, the Hells Angels in charge, but the outlaws are reasserting themselves in various places, uh, from London to Hamilton area to even in, in the Quebec area. 
and uh, there are just so many different groups operating. It's it's hard to list them all, but uh, there's a lot of different pieces, you know, from the cocaine trafficking to ecstasy to fentanyl to um, so many different uh, gambling operations, which is still big. Everything the government doesn't run, organized crime does. Um, to all the things that people want that are illegal, you know, or hard to get. That's what organized crime provides and will always provide. Uh, James Dubrow is with us. Uh, you talked about the fragmentation within what was traditionally uh, the mob, the mafia. Is that changing? Is it due to uh, trouble within, or is it because there are so many various other gangs competing? Well, that's a good question. Uh, there's trouble within, for sure, uh, and there's newer groups even coming from Italy. There's a enduring at a family now. I, I won't name it, but it's you know the boss is the son of some a major Andrangheta boss in Italy, and he's he's in the Greater Toronto Hamilton area, and he is taking over some of uh, the business of uh, Musitano and cocaine. Um, so that's one little battle going on, but there are battles going on between the bikers and the mafia and various other crime groups, uh, the Asian uh, gangs, which are all over the place, in speed, in um, marijuana grow-ups. That's all going to change, too, when marijuana becomes legal. You know, the, not only are they going to be fighting with each other, but they're going to be fighting with the government. Uh, I, I ran into Bill Blair the other day, the, the pot czar now, and he told me that they're going to take on the organized crime groups, the mob, and, and as their main competitor. So they're going to try to keep the price down, prices down for pot. So they're not going to let the, the mob and organized crime continue to control that. And right now it's everything from the Asian gangs to the bikers to the mafia that are in there. How, how successful do you think Bill Blair will be with that? Well, it's, it's the whole weight of the government, not just Blair. But um, I, I think if they keep the price relatively low, it'll have the side effect of making pot a lot cheaper for people. Of <laughs> uh, course, on the other hand, they want to keep kids from smoking it. And by kids, I mean anyone under 18. And that's going to be very tricky for them to do. I don't think they're going to succeed in that. And in fact, they have it so stringent that anyone giving a joint to someone who's under 18 can get five years in jail. That will mean that the... We, we didn't even mention all the street gangs, you know, everything from black organized crime to other street gangs operating right across the country. There's all sorts of them. And they're, they're, they're providing a lot of the pot for the kids, and they have people in all the high schools and the schools. And it's kids selling to kids, basically, although it's really gangsters selling to kids. And they'll, they'll be kept in business because uh, the, 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 anyone on the team won't be able to buy the stuff, although they seem to get liquor easily enough, and that's also illegal. So we'll see what happens there. Um, but I think if they keep the price under a certain point, and I don't know what that point is, um, the government will be somewhat successful. They're not going to ease the mob out of all this. It's a matter of convenience, you know, when you want your drugs, you know, mobsters are awfully good at arranging meetings very quickly in parking lots and garages and things. With your so considering how fragmented uh, the underworld has now become, what will be the success of the mob mafia moving forward? What do they have to do? Uh, do they have to solve these internal problems in order to compete with these outside gangs? Well, they've been doing it for, for decades, uh, trying to, I mean, in Rizzuto, uh, to give Rizzuto credit uh, and his father, they, they consolidated as much power as, as the Mafia ever had in Canada going back for 100 years. You know, that's the great thing about the Mafia. It's got a tradition that goes back 120 years, and some of these people are children or grandchildren of some of the original founders or people who have been around a while. But they always have to do this. I mean, even back in the day, they had to fight in the 20s with uh, Jewish gangs uh, in the bootleg business, uh, Asian gangs that were uh, surfacing back in the 20s and 30s. Uh, there weren't bikers, but there were other there were other organized crime groups back, back in the day. It was never just the mob. You know, Al Capone never even ran Chicago, really. He had Irish gangs to deal. I didn't even mention the Irish gangs. They're in Montreal and other places, um, and, and they're still very, quite active. So what will the modern-day organization look like if it's to survive? You're talking about the mafia? Yeah. Well, when we say the mafia, as I just did, 
uh, we got to remember we're talking about many mafias, the you know the Sicilian and Calabrian are the two main things, but the, beyond that, there isn't one Calabrian mafia. It was what we called the Andrangheta, or the Italians call it that. It's it's the secret society of the Calabrian mafia, and there are many many cells, and we have many cells in the uh, Golden Horseshoe, Toronto area. Uh, certainly, at least a half a dozen, no, probably a dozen now. Uh, and they work together. There's a there's a commission and all that, but they're they're rivals, you know, and they're friendly rivals, if you will. Uh, so, you know, uh, eventually uh, there'll be several major mafia figures in the Indrangheta and in the Sicilian, probably in Montreal. Some will emerge in the next few years to be the boss of Montreal, and then he, like Rizzuto, will move some of that power to, to here. And the other thing that the star pointed out, and it's true, is that there are British Columbia drug gangs that are very big right now, uh, have been for 10 years, and they work with the people in Ontario and Quebec in various alliances, some of them working together. Everyone has to work together in organized crime now. We didn't even mention the British Columbia gangs, but they're important too. And they have connections in Mexico, and everyone has connections in Central America. So there's a lot going on, and uh, whether one person will emerge in Quebec is questionable because the police are really working the current two people that are sort of acting bosses, and there's a lot of other people working to undermine the mafia, and not the least of which is Haitian gangs in Montreal. They're actually quite powerful, too. What can Hamilton expect over the next couple of years? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> Hamilton is less significant, you know, now than it used to be in the mob world. It used to be the place where the heart beat for the mafia in Ontario, as I said in one of my books, because a lot of the original people came over to either Montreal or the Hamilton area back 100 years ago. I think today it's less important uh, for the uh, the old mob families, you know, the Musitano group, which is under Pat now, it's probably one of the last of that uh, that group. There's, but there's a fresher group coming in from Italy. Um, there are new families coming in, uh, Calabrian families, and they're putting their flags uh, around southern Ontario, um, and including Hamilton. So the bikers are, are getting more powerful in the Hamilton area. The Hells Angels now have a, a good presence there, good or bad, I don't know, but a presence, strong presence there. They're going to be a factor. There's... There's some Russian groups. There's uh, some Asian groups. Uh, I don't think you'll see one mob boss in in the Hamilton area. And, that, and there wasn't, actually. I mean, Johnny Papelli was probably the closest thing going way back, but he, even he wasn't. There were other people. There were Filipinos, uh, old Dominic Musitano. And old Dominic Musitano was a real godfather type. You know, it was Pat Musitano wasn't that organized. It wasn't that sophisticated. But... Dominic Musitano was uh, probably the last godfather of, of Hamilton, really, after Papalia. But, uh, well, actually, he was before Papalia, but they, they, they coexisted with each other. And as far as influence and the influence that, uh, that, that the mafia once had here and that it has now and moving forward, uh, are they the strongest? Are there other gangs, whether it's bike gangs, whether it's Asian gangs, this, that, and the other, that are more powerful, that control more? Who controls the most? That's hard to say because, you know, the mafia in Hamilton and the Hamilton area has a great deal of uh, sympathy with a lot of people. They know everyone. They've been around forever, right? So, And they have traditions. So they have been around, and that gives them a little one-upsmanship on some of the biker gangs. But the Hells Angels are pretty powerful, uh, I would say, and the outlaws are coming in. Uh, the Asian gangs less powerful. I would say probably the mafia is less powerful in Hamilton now, but they still will be a presence for the foreseeable future. And I wouldn't have said that 45 years ago when I was working on connections for the CBC. It seemed like the mafia would fade out, but they have an incredible power to survive and keep reinventing themselves. They need more innovative leaders than Angelo or Pat Musitano. Angela wasn't really a leader, but Pat was, and they need much more, uh, almost, uh, I was going to say sophisticated, yeah, sophisticated, not necessarily intellectual leaders. They need people of, you know, like Vito Rizzuto or Rocco Perry in the teens and 20s, uh, Paul Volpe in the 70s and 80s in Toronto. And those people don't seem to be 
surfacing right now that we know of. But of course, these things take a while before they become public knowledge. So. James Dubrow has been with us, well-known, long, uh, long-time crime writer and researcher and specialist in organized crime. Website, James, we can go to to find out more about you and what you're doing. Uh, I have a website under Jim Dubrow, uh, I think what it's called now, Investigative Reports. It's on my, near my Facebook page, uh, Jim Dubrow at, uh, it's a Facebook sub-listing investigative journalist. James, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. Okay, well, Fascinating. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Vladimir Putin has announced that Russia will expel over 750 U.S. diplomats and would consider imposing other measure, uh, measures in a response to new U.S. sanctions. Uh, where does this leave the... Uh, remember the bromance between Trump and, and Putin prior to the election? Uh, Even Putin goes on to say, quote, we were waiting for quite a long time that maybe something would change for the better. We're holding out hope that the situation would change somehow, but it appears that even if it changes someday, it will not change soon. To talk more about all of this, Stephanie Carvin is with us, Assistant Professor of International Affairs, uh, Carleton University, and with us now. Hello, Stephanie. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. You know, uh, prior to the U.S. election, it thought it was thought that we were heading down a whole new different road with Russia, uh, almost uh, a bromance, it appeared, between Trump and, uh, and Putin. Where is this relationship now? Well, um, <laughs> if it's a bromance, we might be in the uh, slightly awkward phase, maybe the the realization that the person you were dating is not the person you thought you were dating, um, and we see Putin retaliating. And it, but all of this is really interesting because you're right. So um, after the election, as it became increasingly clear that the intelligence agencies in the United States believed that the there was good grounds to um, assess that the Russians had actually interfered in the U.S. Uh, election uh, in various ways, that, uh, you know, and, and the Obama administration was putting sanctions on them as, as, as a result of this, that uh, Putin actually didn't respond. He decided that he would not uh, actually respond. Because normally when you have a retaliation by one state, they retaliate back, right? It's a kind of a tit-for-tat right. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and in this case, Putin actually didn't do anything, so he held off on some kind of mutual sanctions uh, to go forward. So that was really interesting. And there was some, you know, some people wondered, well, you know, there was some interesting phone call from the Trump camp <laughs> to uh, the Russian ambassador at the time. So did that have anything to do with it? Were they trying to downplay this? Was there some kind of guarantee made? We don't really know that for sure. But so anyways, all this to say is that now that these new sanctions have gone, uh, appear to be gone through, and it has a fill of, you know, it has a veto-proof majority with 98 senators agreeing to them. Um, you know, Trump is in a, a situation where he pretty much has to sign the legislation, and uh, Putin is now in, saying, okay, fine, not only am I going to retaliate for the original sanctions that Obama put on before, I'm going to extra-retaliate. And that's why we now have the over 700 individuals that are going to be forced to leave uh, the U.S. Embassy. It seems that Trump has one type of relationship with Russia and the U.S. government has another. Yes, that's very much true. And that has to do, I mean, it's very different from our system, right? Because in the Canadian system, the prime minister has pretty much all the powers over the government in terms of international affairs, right? Um, you know, Trudeau can deploy forces. It, it's his prerogative to do so. It's his power. He doesn't have to ask for authority at all. There doesn't have to be a debate in the parliament uh, about it. But in the United States, uh, the Congress has asserted, and uh, the U.S. Constitution gives Congress far more authority in international affairs than we have here. So it's possible for different levels of government to have different relationships with different um, entities. This isn't the first time we've seen this. We saw, for example, uh, the Obama administration, for example, wanted to open up to Cuba. The Russian uh, Congress didn't want that at all. So, sorry, the, uh, the U.S. Congress didn't want that at all. And uh, so, you know, we, we have seen this kind of split before. But I don't think, I, I can't recall a time in modern memory where it's been this open and this severe. It, it, it is really astonishing. What was Trump's relationship with Russia and Putin prior to this? Why does he have a different view of all of this than the government does? Well, this kind of gets to the heart of the Russia investigation. What is it that 
you know, what is it that makes Trump really like Russia and Putin so much? Uh, someone, uh, you know, was just posting on Twitter a few, uh, like, uh, a few minutes ago, and they were showing, you know, these are all the, uh, the over 300 things Trump has insulted <laughs> since his electoral candidacy uh, basically began in 2015, list the number of things. And he has never said one bad word about Vladimir Putin. Ever, which is astonishing, because uh, you, know, you know he attacks his own party, he attacks his own attorney general. He has never said a single bad word about Putin. So I think you know there's um, a lot of spec, and this is pure speculation. It should be noted for your audience that the uh, you know there might be some financial ties. Why doesn't Trump want to give up his? financial records is there something there he seems to be more and more upset about the investigation into the russian interference allegations because we understand that the new head of the investigation um uh, his name is Mueller of course Mueller uh that he James Mueller that he is now going to be asking for the financial records of the Trump administration uh, sorry of of Trump and there might be something in there which suggests that you know there could be some kind of financial transaction so you know we don't know i mean and it kind of gets back to this, all this mysterious thing trump has never really explained his relationship with putin he's never really uh discussed his financial ties in russia he denies any contacts but we know that's not true because his own sons have said repeatedly to the media uh and this is before he was a candidate but said repeatedly russia is a major source of income for us so we know there is money there. We know the Russian state is corrupt. There could be some pretty nasty things there that, you know, all of this paints a pretty bad picture. It's, it's speculation. It's all a lot of smoke. We don't know if there's a smoking gun, but gosh, you know, at this point you have to start wondering. It's sir, again, again, this is all speculation, but it does lead you to believe just by Trump's actions or lack thereof that Putin has something hanging over his head. And you're wondering at what time does Putin use this? Well, well, this is just it. And, you know, I mean, whether it's the salacious tape that we heard so much about back in January. Yeah, whatever or, happened to that? Did that just all fall by the wayside? Well, uh, you know, you hear it, that whole, um, there was the dossier that was put together by um, a former U.K. spy who's now in private intelligence. And I believe his name was Christopher Steele. And he put, it's the Steele dossier. And he put together a dossier. And apparently, I mean, there's rumor. Again, it's rumors. We don't know for sure. We have nothing to, to classify. But apparently they're using that as a guideline. Um, and that, so a lot of the things that have been in that memo have subsequently turned out to be true. So, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. But again, I mean, but even if we just want to go, I mean, here's the thing. Even if none of this is true, even if it's all smoke and mirrors, it could just be the fact that Trump admires Putin's hard man style. He, he admires his authoritarianism. He admires his... Uh, the way he kind of portrays himself as manliness and all this kind of things. He admires Putin's authoritarian right. style. And control, I mean, so yeah. even, even the most banal explanation is still disturbing. Uh, expelling 755 U.S. diplomatic staff, what does this do? Any significance? Uh, how does that affect things? Well, that's a that's a good question. So, I mean, it's the most amount of diplomats expel, expe, uh, sorry, expelled, I believe, since 1986, uh, when there was a, a, a kind of a spy scandal that that went on. Uh, the U.S. arrested a spy, and then the uh, the Russians or the Soviets at the time arrested a journalist, and then people got expelled here and there. Uh, in this particular case, I mean, it was interesting because the former U.S. ambassador, his name is Michael McFall. He actually said, do we even have that many employees in the Russian yeah. embassies like, in total? And he wasn't, he's like, that seems like way too many. Uh, so what it seems to be, it's not just the Americans that would be expelled, but it would also be locally engaged staff. Mm. And so what happens is um, often uh, because you can't, you know, for the cop, because it costs a lot of money to have, uh, your own citizens in another country and housing them and putting them up and paying them, you often hire people who are there uh, just to help run you, like, the everyday uh, operations of the U.S. Embassy. So, you know, uh, helping to, you know, being administrative support, helping to, you know, just kind of some very basic functions. Now, unfortunately, in this case, uh, that seems, it seems like a lot of these Russians are actually going to lose their jobs. So the locally employed Russians, the Russians employed by the Americans, they're going to be losing their jobs as well to be told to leave. Uh, and I believe the New York Times came out this morning and said that they believe that there's a hun- uh, 1,200 in total 
so that this would leave somewhere uh, just less than 500 uh, people running all of the U.S. operations there. And, um, you know, this is just going to basically, it's going to allow the U.S. Embassy to stay open. It's going to allow it to function, but it's going to be functioning much slower and much smaller going uh, at a time when tensions are clearly uh, worsening between the two countries. Uh, Putin's comments on waiting for a long time that something would change. Uh, so allegedly there's interference or there is interference with the U.S. Ele- election, uh, you know, collusion of some sort. Uh, to what extent, we don't know. So obviously they did this to get their man in, their man's in, and nothing seems to have changed. So where does that leave Putin's thought on all of this? Well, I, w- I would push back against that slightly. We don't know the exact reasoning why Russia did this, right? We don't know. You know, there's, there's an agreement in the U.S. intelligence community that Russia did involve uh, get involved, and they did work on the side of Trump. But was it? There's a huge question there. Did they do it in order to get Trump into office, or did they do it to just genuinely weaken the United States electoral system generally? Mm-hmm. Did they do it to just try and weaken the idea of democracy to right. challenge uh, some of the core notions of the United States, just to kind of uh, psychologically mess with them, to kind of cast dispersions and doubt? Because you know, there's there's good reason to believe that even Putin thought that Hillary Clinton would win, but thought he would greatly weaken her as a U.S. president right. if, you know, he cast doubt on the validity of the election, which is what he was doing. Uh, unfortunately, it, his plan just seems to have, perhaps, if, if that was the plan, it seems to have worked too well. And he seems to have gotten someone in office who, unfortunately, isn't capable of uh, delivering maybe some of the things that he wants. So it's going to, I think what we see and the next three to four months is going to be really interesting, not just on the can Trump actually handle his own White House side, but how this actually moves forward on Putin's side. Like, what else is he going to do? Uh, he knows that the United States is in a lot of disarray right now. Does that actually free his hand to do uh, to make more uh, difficulties for the West in Europe or perhaps in uh, the Middle East? Because, of course, they're actively involved in Syria. So that these are going to be some really interesting questions going forward. Can Putin save Trump in some way, especially when it comes to the Russian investigation? I don't see how, um, unless, you know, Putin, you know, can somehow produce some kind of evidence. I don't think anyone would believe him uh, at this point if he says, no, we weren't involved. And, and certainly they've said things to this effect. They're like, this is fake news. And, right. uh, you know, uh, they have some very, um, if you look at the Russian Twitter accounts, they're very uh, sarcastic about all the allegations, and they make some uh, very undiplomatic um, comments about the U.S. deep state. Certainly we saw that kind of out of some of the uh, Russian Twitter accounts today. So I'm not really sure what they can do. I think that the plan is, if the plan is just to continue to cause disruption, it's definitely working because, you know, Trump's fans, are, they're still there. They still uh, believe that the news is fake. They still don't follow uh, basically the, what the, their intelligence, you know, a lot of Americans don't believe their own intelligence community when they say, that, you know, this actually occurred. And certainly uh, Russia is doing its best to spread propaganda to actually emphasize those points. So it's going to be, like I said, it's going to be really interesting. And I think where where this might really start, where the rubber might really start hitting the road is if the uh, the Republicans start to realize that Trump actually isn't a Republican, he's an independent, and he only trusts his immediate family and apparently some generals, and that he's not really on their side. If the Republicans start to realize this, that they're not going to get their agenda through, um, this is where we might really start to see some interesting things happen on the Russia file. Uh, so is, was there ever a bromance between these two? Is it over before it ever started? Uh, this is a good question. But like you said, you know, there's a reason I, you know, you have to believe that Trump and Putin um, had, you know, they definitely had a relationship before Trump had his Miss, or I guess it's Miss Universe pageant was held in Russia. Um, that, you know, that's where he, you know, he's definitely done business there before. We know that they've met before. Um, again, I think a lot of this, the actual relationship between Putin and Russia or elements of the Russian state, which, of course, are all controlled by Putin, if these start to come out in the investigations that go forward, we'll have a better idea of how we can answer that question. Uh, your thoughts on uh, his new communications director, uh, Scaramucci? Oh <laughs> the mooch. Um, wow. Um, 
he is a interesting choice. I, I think you know I was actually had um, the opportunity to have some brunch with some communication specialists out here in. Um, Ottawa, and I asked, actually asked them, and I said, well, what do you think of, you know, you know, your communication specialist, what do you think of it? And they couldn't believe it, like someone like this. They said, you know, it's, it's basically a recipe for disaster. If you're looking to bring calm and order, you know, you basically just brought the bull into the china shop yourself. Mm. Um, and I can't see, I mean, what's going to be really interesting is that his approach, it really seems to be two things. In the first sense, he's kind of going Joe Pesci style. Let's find the leakers in the White House, right. and he's going to shake people down until he sees, until he thinks he's found them. The second thing is, of course, that he seems to believe that the best messaging is letting Trump be Trump, and we might actually see more and more tweets coming out of the White House from Donald Trump saying all kinds of things. Um, Rather than <laughs> trying to decode them and, and set the, the staff on a wild goose chase, just say, hey, it is what it is, and that's him. And that's him. He said, like, you know, his idea is to let Trump be Trump. How that's going to work with General Kelly, um, who's the new uh, chief of staff, that is going to be interesting because General Kelly is the kind of law and order guy, and he wants to keep things out. But if the communications guy and apparently Trump friend Scaramucci is now saying, "No, we got to let Trump be Trump," <laughs> that's going to be Hang on. an interesting showdown. <laughs> Buckle uh, up. Speaking of showdowns, uh, North Korea. Uh, Trump tweeting that China should be doing more. They do nothing for us with uh, North Korea. Just talk. We will no longer allow this to continue. China could easily solve this problem. Um, boy, oh boy, he's certainly um, he's going after anyone he can on this. Uh, on Twitter. What, what, Not what, Putin. <laughs> what, yeah. What's, and is this a distraction from all of that? Uh, no, I think it is a serious problem. The issue is that, you know, for a long time, the United States has been pressuring for China to actually do something about North Korea. Now, with North Korea, China really has uh, two kind of driving factors. The first is that China doesn't want a failed North Korea because they're terrified that millions of starving, poor, impoverished um, North Koreans would basically flood the Chinese border, destabilizing that entire region, right? And so, like, if, they're, if China's uh, number one priority is stability, within its own borders, the last thing it wants is this huge wave of migration uh, from a failed North Korean state. So it tries to prop up the state. That's absolutely true. Um, on the other hand, uh, North Korea is, I mean, it's one of the, like, really, China only seems to have two allies, and that's not even really the right word for it, but it has Pakistan on the one hand, and it has North Korea on the other. And, but there is kind of a uh, warm feeling towards North Korea because, you know, Mao supported North Korea and the war. It made the difference. It made sure that the North survived. And it kind of, you know, so you can use the Korean War as an example of uh, Mao's strategy and strategic genius where, you know, a lot of his other economic uh, policies have failed. So there's kind of the uh, the warm and fuzzy feeling that people have with, with their understanding of the North Korean conflict in China and then as well the concerns about stability. So that's why China kind of uh, had defends North Korea. That's why it kind of props it up. The issue is, though, can China fix this alone, as Trump's saying? And the, no, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, Beijing is just as frustrated with the, with the missile tests. There is some, uh, there's been a lot of research done which suggests that uh, chi- there are firms in China which are circumventing various UN sanctions. And we have seen in various North Korean military parades, Chinese trucks and and things that probably shouldn't be there that have somehow gotten from China to North Korea. So Trump is absolutely right there. But look, at the end of the day, what North Korea wants is to survive, and it's going to do everything it can to create these missiles. We now have to accept the fact that North Korea is a nuclear state, that it has these things, and we're going to have to proceed accordingly. Uh, The best route is when you have these kind of six-party talks going together. Trump is not a fan of multilateralism, so it's a real problem going forward. Uh, China, China cannot solve this problem alone. I think if it could solve this problem, it would have solved this problem a long time ago. It has encouraged China to make economic and certain political reforms. It has not done that. So it really, it's a mess. I think we now live in a world where we have a new nuclear weapons state with, that is capable of hitting us. Uh, everything, every North Korean expert that I'm aware of believes that North Korea is actually rational, 
when it wants to when it comes to these weapons and that if it's basically driven by the desire to survive there's a basis there for negotiation and trying to work something out where it, it will be guaranteed that you know you know you're a terrible regime you can survive but um a lot of the alternatives going in conflict missile strikes all these things i think they would have far worse consequences than hmm. trying to come up with some diplomatic solution Stephanie Carbon has been with us, Assistant Professor of International Affairs, Carleton University. Stephanie, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Should prisoners have access to email, uh, the Internet, tablets, devices, what have you, uh, behind bars? Apparently, there is limited use of computer, but there is no outside uh, connection, so no access to the internet. Uh, apparently, we're falling behind when it comes to this sort of thing. And at the end of the day, uh, this is about rehabilitation and getting people back out of uh, being incarcerated and, of course, contributing to society. Are we doing any advantages by keeping them off the internet? Is this just part of the normal process, and can we not monitor it? Uh, let's bring in Jennifer Metcalf, Executive Director and Supervising Lawyer with Prison Legal Services in Burnaby, British Columbia, and is with us now. Hello, Jennifer. How are you today? Good. How are you, Scott? Great. Thank you for taking the time to join us. So uh, what is the rule now? How much access do prisoners have in this country? Very little access. I mean, there, there's no access to the Internet or email at this point. Um, prisoners used to be able to have their own personal computers in their cells, but they've um, removed that right now. Um, so they have some shared computers that um, they can use, but it's, um, it's not nearly enough for everyone to have as much use as they would need. So they were once allowed and then discontinued, I believe, in 2002. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. And what was the reason being given at that time? I'm not sure, but I would assume it had to do with um, the fact that all computers now have access to the Internet. So um, I think it's a security concern about that. Um, but I think um, that those concerns um, could be addressed in other ways. Um, the Corrections and Conditional Release Act includes the right that offenders retain the right to all me of all members of society except those that are, as a consequence of the sentence, lawfully and necessarily removed or restricted. So um, that concept of retained rights is, is really important. That It's the lack of liberty, which is the, the punishment, and the purpose of that is rehabilitation. So if we're taking away um, technology that is so instrumental to participating in society, I think that's um, an unlawful deprivation of a right that um, prisoners should retain while they're in custody if it's safe for them to participate in or to use that technology. So how does Canada compare to those in other parts of the world? Uh, where are we on this? Oh, I understand um, prisoners in the States have access to um, email and the Internet, so it, it seems like it is possible to um, provide that um, access in Canada, it's just, um, yeah, that, that we just don't do it. So um, I think it's, it's time for us to, to let prisoners get with the 21st century so that when they're released, it's, um, they're going to be, you know, they're going to need to make resumes and have some awareness of technology and computers. It's, it's a real barrier, I think, for people to successfully reintegrate into society as law-abiding citizens with jobs if they are deprived of those rights. Can you not teach them uh, com uh, computer skills and things like resume building that they'll need to, to have once they are out? Can that not be taught without access to the Internet? Do they need access to the Internet in order to be rehabilitated? Uh, well, I guess teaching those skills and access to the Internet are, are sort of different issues, but um, I think the, just the Internet itself is so much a part of, society today that um, to have no awareness of it and no ability to to use that technology um, would be a, a, it's a it's a it's a problem I think and it would I think it would affect people's ability to reintegrate easily into society where do you draw the line for something like this because there's there's still some out there Jennifer that would say you know what they should have thought of that before they got in prison and all that sort of stuff 
Um, how much access do you give them? Uh, do you give them access uh, only during certain times when they're doing educational things? Uh, do you allow them to use it for personal use? How, how do you, where do you draw the line? I think it should be allowed for personal use um, depending on the person's risk factors. I think um, it would have to be an individualized assessment of whether it's safe to provide it um, for each individual. So um, obviously, you know, when people are on conditional release in society, sometimes they have restrictions on computer use, um, and I think that makes sense depending on people's risk factors. So they would, they would just have to look at each person if, if someone has no history of fraud or, um, you know, child porn or anything that would be a concern, then there's, there shouldn't be any reason why that right should be restricted. Uh, since you brought up porn, I mean, uh, I could see that being a bone of contention. So should they have access to that? As long as, I, I mean, in my opinion, as long as it's not related to a risk factor, then there's no reason why they shouldn't have the same rights as anyone else to access legal um, information on the Internet. Uh, how, uh, why are we falling behind other countries on this? You were mentioning that the U.S. allows it. It's part of the rehabilitation process. Why are we falling behind? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I, I don't know. I'm qualified to answer that. <laughs> uh, so we don't know uh, the, really the uh, circumstances around why it was prohibited back in 2002 other than uh, we didn't have much to explain it at that point, I'm guessing, and didn't know where it was going. Yeah, I guess as technology develops, I think, um, it, you know, I'm no techno whiz myself, but I think um, it's easier to control what people have access to now um, as the Internet is developed. So. Um, maybe it's just um, an issue of lagging behind the times, and it's something that we should um, try to catch up to. Uh, can we monitor uh, someone's every move on the Internet? Will uh, corrections facilities, people say, we don't have the manpower to do this? Well, yeah, again, like I'm, I, I'm not too familiar with how those, that kind of technology would work, but um, I think that it's possible, you know, we have parental controls that parents don't need to be directly monitoring all the time. I'm sure that there are ways to um, make sure that people are using the Internet safely without it taking too many resources. Uh, are there many, is there a big movement to push for this? Uh, is this, uh, are a lot of prisoners asking for this? Is, is the movement growing to, to give them this? Uh, I think as, as technology develops, there's more and more pressure. Um, you know, prisoners often need access to computers to work on their criminal cases or, like, their appeals. Um, sometimes, um, you know, that's when we hear from them as a legal aid clinic, when they have legal issues that they need. Um, you know, people want to get divorced. Um, they might have other, like, a lot of the legal um, information is only accessible now on the Internet. So, um, for people to be able to participate um, as fully as possible, um, they need that access. Even things as basic as music. We had a, a client recently who had some mental disabilities, and she wanted to have music that she could play in her cell to help herself calm down, um, which would you know, be a, a mental health accommodation and also help with safety in the prisons and help, help her with her anger management. Um, but because... Um, they don't really make walk Walkman anymore. You know, you can't get... Um, right. It's harder. You know, everybody has MP3s. And so I think they will... They do need to deal with this issue as, as technology evolves. Are there lineups in, in correctional facilities to use this equipment? Or uh, is there a demand for it? Yeah, we do get um, frequent calls from people who need to have more access to computers. Um, it, even, um, you know, people in pretrial custody who need um, to go over disclosure, which comes on CDs, um, they need to use a computer to be able to see that disclosure. So we do get calls from people on that issue fairly regularly. Uh, Correctional Services Canada says they're exploring things, uh, but there is no actual pilot at this time. Where do you think this is going? Well, um, things tend to move pretty slowly um, in corrections, so um, 
I, I do hope it's something that will be addressed in, in the near future, but yeah, I'm not sure what the timeline might be on that. Uh, what about cost? Do you think that's going to be a huge issue here? Uh, nobody's going to be wanting to, to flip the bill for this sort of thing? Well, I think um, before 2002, prisoners paid for computers if they wanted their own computers. They pay for their own television, so I don't think that um, that part of it would be uh, an issue for CSC. What about uh, the public's response? What do you think the court of public opinion will say on this? I always try to avoid reading um, public comments on news articles because um, oftentimes I think um, people don't really appreciate the big picture, so I think some people might have a a knee-jerk reaction to it, but when you consider um, the overall safety of society, we want we want prisoners to be rehabilitated. We want them to be able to re-enter society um, as law-abiding citizens. And so, anything that we can do to uh, make it easier for them to rehabilitate and um, to, you know, be law-abiding citizens, I think we should do it. Do you think the public appreciates that? Uh, or realizes, for that matter, the rehabilitation that does or tries to go on in correctional facilities. Uh, Is it about paying a penalty, or is it about trying to uh, provide this person with what they need uh, in order to get back into and become a contributing member of society? Well, I think the overall arching um, goal is public safety, and so... um I don't think a system that's based on punishment is effective um, for public safety. Um, I also think that we need a system that respects everyone's basic human rights, no matter what they've done. Um, And if we want people to rehabilitate, we have to treat them with a basic level of dignity and respect. And um, I think that having um, equal access, like having your rights protected in this this would be one of those ways that rights are protected when there isn't a safety or security concern. We need to do it. Uh, many of us don't think about what happens. Uh, th- there's lots of chatter, of course, when we're trying to put somebody behind bars. There's not much chatter with what to do with them once they have paid their penalty. Um, how are we doing as a society, as a country, when it comes to rehabilitating these people? How hard is it for them to re-enter society after being incarcerated? I, I think we could be doing a much better job. Um, I think we need to have a real change of culture within corrections. Um, I think that it's really hard for people to rehabilitate when they're not treated um, with a basic level of respect. Um, yeah, and we could be doing so much more. How many go uh, back in and end up reoffending? Do we have those numbers? Is it mm-hmm. is there is there a sweet spot there when we can, you know, hopefully help someone? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm terrible at remembering statistics like that, and I don't have them in front of me. But um, yeah, I think um, that it's generally shown that the the successful chance people are much more successful at reintegrating into society when um when they have when their rights are respected and when they have when they're held in lower levels of security um and when they have a period to um serve some of their sentences in the community so um i think the danger is when we're we're too restrictive and people end up um staying in in custody and high levels of security up to their warrant expiry dates, then they have no opportunity to live in society under with a um, community parole officer under supervision and to have some some of those supports that come along with that for mental health issues or addictions that would um, enable them to to get established and um, not return to crime. We don't hear a lot of those good news stories. Would we be surprised how many people go in, turn things around, and come out and and become positive members of society? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I wish I had the statistics, but um, you know, just from some of the clients that I've had who've um, been released and are are doing well in the community, um, once they're once they're not under that, um, like I think. It's much easier to, for people to succeed when um, when they're being treated with respect on a daily level. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of um, of really inspiring success stories out there that we just don't hear about. 
What is the biggest challenge to somebody who's been incarcerated for a period of time and then getting out? Well, um, there's been a lot in the news recently about solitary confinement. Um, There's been a lot of research done on the psychological effects of solitary confinement um, in the short term and the long term. So people, you know, the worst case scenarios, people with mental health issues that are held in isolation for months at a time and then um, have no opportunity to learn how to, um, to function with other people, even in prison, let alone out in, in society. Um, I think that's a real challenge for people. So we, we really want to see um, solitary confinement abolished and um, ensure that everyone has enough meaningful human contact every day that their mental health doesn't deteriorate. That would be a, a very basic first first step um, for helping people to um, succeed in their rehabilitation. We hear so much about those uh, suffering some sort of mental health issue, getting caught up uh, in the correctional facility cycle. Uh, are we doing enough to separate them and, and, and um, not weed them out, I guess, is, is a poor choice of words, but making sure they get certainly the help, the extra help that they need? No, yeah, we're not... We're not doing nearly enough. Um, I think we really need major reforms to the not criminally responsible um, regime or um, even in sentencing. I know in some other countries they'll they'll first determine whether the person committed the act and then um, then they'll look at um, you know what what is the best thing for society do do we need to be like what's the purpose of punishing people if we want people not to um, do bad things, what do we need to make that happen? And I think we need to be addressing people's mental health issues and acknowledge when they play a role in people's offending. Like, I don't think there are, there are bad people. There are people who have had traumatic um, childhoods and, you know, um, have done bad things for one reason or another, and we need to look at um, what we need to do to help them to... Um, to not do bad things and to keep society safe. Uh, we certainly know the case of Vincent Lee, the the man who decapitated the, the rider on the Greyhound bus in Manitoba and, uh, of course, uh, was uh, found not criminally responsible and then slowly uh, through the process was uh, integrated or is being integrated back into society. What does the public have to understand about this that, that perhaps we're not getting? How do we how do we you know justify someone who's created such or who 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 uh, initiated such a, a heinous crime and and then get to the point where uh, we can let him walk the streets? Mm-hmm. Well, I understand he was um, schizophrenic and was was not um, taking medication. So I think <clears throat> once um, you know people are on medication that helps them appreciate. Um, their actions and the consequences of their actions, um, those are the people that we don't need to worry about in the future because if anyone is going to realize that they need to keep taking their medication, it's, you know, someone who's who's done something horrible and then um, understands understands that once they are medicated. So um, it, I think, you know, the, the test for criminal responsibility is doing the act and then having the intent to do the act, and he didn't have the intent, so there's no there's no real value in punishing someone who had no intention of, of doing the act of, of a crime. So, um, yeah, we just need to <clears throat> help people provide better mental health services in the community to try to avoid people with mental health issues ending up in our prisons. Jennifer Metcalf has been with us, Executive Director and Supervising Lawyer with the Prisoner Legal Services in Burnaby, British Columbia, talking about should prisoners have access to the Internet, email, their devices, and such. Jennifer, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.